I'd like to thank this congregation for uh, their prayers and support of Anne, Kalia, and I in our ministry with Santiago Theological Seminary in Santiago, Dominican Republic, which we began working there in 2018. Uh, we haven't been able to move there yet, but we plan to move, Lord willing, uh, next July. Um, I'll pray for us as we go down there this November uh, to uh, spend some days there. Uh, one of them uh, objectives is uh, Kalia being interviewed for the school she'd go to next year. And uh, I'll be down there for a graduation we have for our certificate in Christian counseling students. And there's somewhere around 70 students that have been taking that program. And uh, we also are planning to start next fall a gap year program for high school graduates. Um, and uh, we're even recruiting some from here in the States, uh, Lord willing. So pray for that. Now, uh, to the exposition of the word. In contrast with Islam, in which Allah is transcendent and unknowable, not even knowing his name and indirectly communicates his will only in Arabic, the God of the Bible has his focus on a personal relationship through a covenant with his people that is communicated in everyone's language. That covenantal relationship in the Old Testament is focused on the presence of God in the midst of his people, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, to which all the people of God came for worship and offered their sacrifices. There was a central petal drawing of all God's people from all the families of the earth to become part of Zion, centralized in Jerusalem. And this changes dramatically with, uh, in dramatic ways with the institution of the new covenant upon the arrival of the Messiah, whereby the gospel now goes outwardly to the ends of the earth as we are filled with his presence. Now let's look at how the psalmist celebrates this new future world city of ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God uses us to bring into his family people from the ends of the earth. And when I went to preach in a small church on the outskirts of Monrovia, Liberia, I saw a couple of adolescent Muslim girls sitting nearby as I was walking towards the door. I invited them into the service to which they came. And since uh, they had no electricity in that place, is at nighttime, I preached in a dark room packed with people with just one candle and someone holding a flashlight for me uh, as I looked at my notes. And the spirit of God, however, was moving and about... 16 people responded in faith to the gospel, including these two Muslim girls and their mother. And God had prepared their hearts, drew them in love, and thus they believed upon hearing the word. Now, this is part of the fulfillment of this Psalm 87. 
attributed to the sons of Korah, who were gatekeepers and musicians in the temple, the psalm was used for singing and worship as with the rest of the psalms. Although not stated, the occasion of writing this psalm may have been when the first temple was built in Jerusalem or for one of the three annual pilgrimages or pilgrimage festivals when proselytes, that's foreign converts to Judaism, joined into that temple worship. Attributed, um, this psalm begins with the holy mount that stands On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The city is in the hill country of Judea. Praise is given to God for the city he founded in the place where he dwells. Remember the God, when the temple had been inaugurated, the spirit of God came and filled the temple with God's presence. So the Lord is its true foundation and strength. And Zion is a poetic reference to Jerusalem used by the prophets when spiritual significance is attached to the city. It is where God dwells with his people in the temple and is a metaphor for all of the chosen people of God. Asaph sings, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. That is, God shines through his people who live in righteousness. When we are told the Lord loves the gates of Zion, although used as a poetic reference uh, to Zion, it is speaking of access of the worshipers into the city and temple to establish or renew their relationship with God, particularly during those three annual festivals. And as a psalm of accent states, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Psalm 122. So this reminds us of the saying of Jesus, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So now, instead of physical gates, giving access to a magnificent building that represents paradise, we enter through Jesus to true worship. This is explained in the Gospel of John. Jesus came to earth in the flesh and dwelt among us. That is, he tabernacled among us. Later, Jesus claimed, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then John explains that he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus stated further, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So all the nations enter into true worship through coming to Jesus by faith. Although God loved the other cities in Israel, he chose Jerusalem as a place to have his temple built, we're told in Psalm 78. In Jerusalem... Mount Moriah was the location where he had sent Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, yet provided a ram instead as a type of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would provide to atone for our sins upon the cross. This is on the Temple Mount, traditionally assumed to be the rock outcrop that's inside of the Muslim Dome of the Rock. 
Now, Jerusalem, as the center of worship, was under the old covenant before Jesus introduced the new covenant of his blood upon the cross. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, since the resurrected and living Christ is whom we worship, and his body of which he is the head is composed of the whole church as living stones in the building, there is no longer need for a physical temple in Jerusalem. We now worship as the gathered people of God by the Holy Spirit, wherever two or three are together agreeing in Jesus' name. The temple sacrifices and rituals have all been completed in the finished work of Christ at the cross. When Jesus cried out as he died, it is finished. Glorious things of you are spoken is a reference to both Jerusalem's past and her future. Since God is glorious and he dwells there among his people. When the temple was completed, it was filled with gold, brass, jewels, and valuable wood, with representations of the Garden of Eden and cherubim. The glory of God filled the temple. The worshipers were in awe and bowed down in reverent fear of God. Being glorious, God has made his chosen people glorious by bestowing his grace upon them. His mercy shown in unmerited favor and blessing as promised to the patriarchs is glorious. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 52 speaks of the word of the Lord of the future glory to come upon Zion. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Zion, the people of God, put on that beautiful clothing of a virgin bride who has been made holy as the church is called the bride of Christ. Isaiah continues, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's Isaiah 52, 10. So this glorious transformation of the people of God beautifully dressed seen in Isaiah, is described in the vision of John in Revelation, when an angel said to him, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So Zion is not just a physical place in the city of Jerusalem in Israel in the past, but it is the city of God filled with people from throughout the whole world. As Paul declared concerning all of us who trust in Christ, who once walked as enemies of the cross of Christ, now our citizenship is in heaven. In that Zion, city of God, the new Jerusalem. 
Well, after mentioning the glorious things spoken of the city of God, the psalmist goes on saying, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This is a shocking claim. Rahab is a nickname for Egypt, where Israel had been enslaved for 400 years and was one of the superpowers of the ancient world that exalted pagan mythology. Rahab was a mythological monster whose powers had to be subdued as Yahweh had done to the Egyptians with the Exodus. Babylon was a great pagan military power that later came to carry the people of Jerusalem off to slavery and exile for 70 years as punishment for forsaking God and not keeping his Sabbaths. Both nations were fierce enemies of Israel. Philistia were a pagan people living in five city-states in southwestern Levant along the coast including what is modern Gaza, who worship the fertility god Dagon. Tyre was a great Phoenician city-state along the Mediterranean coast north of Israel in modern Lebanon, known for trading to distant places and establishing the North African city of Carthage. There was the great temple to Melkart, god of merchants and navigators. Psalm 83, 1-7 lists Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre as covenanted together to destroy Israel, God's treasured people. Cush, sometimes referred to as Ethiopia because of the Greek term for them meaning burnt skin, was a very mighty nation in southern Egypt and present-day Sudan in Africa that at first had an alliance with Egypt and Libya to attack Jerusalem ruled by evil king Rehoboam and carried off much wealth, including from the temple in Jerusalem. In the next generation, King Zerah of Ethiopia sent a huge army to attack King, uh, good King Asa of Judah, who met him in battle at Marashah. There Asa defeated the Ethiopians. All these nations had been enemies of Israel, and God predicted his judgment upon them. As Joel prophesied, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Joel 3, 4. As Paul states the lost condition considering those who were uncircumcised in the past under the old covenant, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's from Ephesians 2. However, that's not the end of the story. For all of these nations, not only in Psalm 87, but in numerous passages, we see God's mercy extend to all the peoples of the world. Concerning God's mercy upon someone from Tyre, we see that King Hiram assisted King Solomon in building the temple in Jerusalem as he indicated his faith in the God of Israel who made heaven and earth. 
We're told in 2 Chronicles 2. So King Solomon wrote of the Lord in Psalm 72, 11, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Also in Phoenicia, we see how the prophet Elijah was sent to a widow in Seraphith, Seraphath, which belongs to Sidon. After God miraculously fed her, her son, and Elijah in a time of drought, Elijah was used by God to raise her son from the dead. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Centuries later, we again see God's mercy upon the region of Tyre and Sidon when a Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus when he came there for that purpose. He healed her demon-oppressed daughter after seeing her great faith. Moreover, Jesus declared in condemning the unrepentance of Chorazin and Bethsaida in Galilee who had witnessed Jesus' miracles and preaching But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In other words, these Gentile cities were ready to believe and repent. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 19 declares God's mercy concerning Egypt. A prophecy saying, when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt in Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What an amazing promise. Besides the gospel light in Jesus as a child being called out of Egypt to move to Nazareth, Tradition and history tell us that the gospel was first established in Egypt through, the, through Mark, uh, who wrote the gospel, uh, to which the Coptic church there traces its origin. It is in Alexandria, Egypt, where Athanasius served as bishop and became a champion of orthodoxy on the Trinity, the nature of Christ, and the canon of scripture in the fourth century. The early church had a stronghold in Syria where the New Testament was first translated into another language called Syriac. An oracle came from God through Isaiah concerning a nation beyond the rivers of Cush. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, from Isaiah 18. Now this is a prophecy that the Ethiopians and Nubians or modern-day Sudanese, would also worship the Lord. And this prophecy began to be fulfilled first when Ebed-Melech 
an Ethiopian eunuch serving the king of Judah rescued Jeremiah from dying in a cistern where he was held prisoner. And this act demonstrates his faith in the Lord, a belief in Jeremiah's message. Then, as the early church began to spread, evangelist deacon Philip explained the gospel to the Ethiopian Cushite eunuch who had come to Jerusalem to worship and baptized him upon his professing faith. This eunuch is attributed to be the founder of the ancient Ethiopian Coptic church. Prophet Zechariah prophesied, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that, the, that God is with you. Zechariah 8, 20, 23. Ten men represents a complete group. They come from the nations of every tongue. Thus, we see that it was in God's gracious plan for blessing with knowledge of him and salvation to even those who had been the worst enemies of the people of God. Now they too were included as being the people of God. This is exemplified in the people of Elam in modern Iran upon whom God pronounced his judgment, yet said there would be a remnant whom he would bless, from Jeremiah 49. Today, there is a greater harvest to Christ of up to perhaps three million believers from among former Muslims in Iran than in any other time in its history. A country where now a majority of the population has rejected Islam. For us as believers in Christ, we need to remember that we too were enemies of God in our rebellion and sin, but in love he brought us near to him to become his adopted children. So too, we must forgive our enemies as God has forgiven us. Speaking of that, Pauline is the widow of Rami Ayad who was the director of the Bible Society's only Christian bookstore in Gaza. He was murdered by a Muslim radical who was arrested a few years later. After a few years of bitterness against God, she came to forgive her husband's killer. She prayed for a blessing in his life. Her oldest son, George, responded to the question of what he thought of the man who had murdered his father. He said, I forgive him and I pray that he will go to heaven and meet with my dad. Wouldn't we have a different world if we all had that approach to our enemies? That takes the work of God's spirit. The inclusion of God's people's enemies in the family of God was demonstrated during the time of prophet Elisha when Naaman the Syrian general, afflicted with leprosy, came to him to be cleansed of his dreaded disease through the witness of his slave girl from Israel. After he saw that God cleansed him after dipping seven times in the Jordan River, Naaman said, for from now on your servant will not 
offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. It is astounding that God should pour out his grace and mercy upon the one in charge of oppressing his chosen people. He is lavishly generous in pouring out his grace upon the undeserving. Jesus referred to the example of the healing of Naaman as a sign of God's love and salvation even for the pagan peoples around Israel, as we see in Luke 4. So the prophecy of Zechariah and Joel 2 found fulfillment on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when people from many tongues and nations were gathered in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. It was the beginning of the great ingathering of the Gentiles with Jews into the household of God. As those responding to the gospel that day were from what is today Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Rome, Egypt, Libya, and Arabia. Upon cleansing the temple, Jesus said to the Jews, quoting from Isaiah 56, 7, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations or all peoples? God's intent, even before the new covenant era inaugurated by Jesus, was that people from every people group would be part of his family. God had blessed the nation of Israel that they might bring his blessing to all the peoples of the world. And we see this stated in Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. This final phrase refers not to just nations, but to families and individuals. Jesus' final command in Matthew 28, 19, called the Great Commission, was to disciple Pantata ethne, in Greek, commonly translated as all the nations. However, we often mistakenly think of nations as meaning, meaning political nations that would include many ethnicities. But just having a Christian witness within a political nation does not mean that you have reached the people groups within that nation. Now, the use of this phrase in both the Old and New Testament is usually meaning not individuals, but ethnic or people groups. When God made his promise of blessing to Abraham, he said, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The way this is translated in Acts 3.25, when quoted by Peter in his sermon, it uses a word that specifies a people group, such as a tribe or clan. Whereas when Paul quotes the promise to Abraham in Galatians 3.8, he uses pantata ethne, meaning that salvation would come through his descendant, Jesus Christ, to all the families. This idea of the gospel going out to all the families or clans of the earth is emphasized in Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and return to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Again, we see the same in Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
So when speaking of families in these passages, it does not mean the nuclear family, but to the larger grouping of clan or tribe. Thus in Revelation 5.9, we see that Christ the Lamb was worshipped in song, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Thus, this concept should be a part of our mission strategy in reaching the whole world with the gospel. As Jesus prophesied, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, that is, all the ethnicities, and then the end will come. It is an astonishing statement when the psalmist says, this one was born there, in verse 4. That means they had all the full rights of citizenship. They had been adopted into the family and household of God, obtaining all its rights and privileges. The idea is restated again slightly differently in verse 5. This one and that one were born in her. Here, the psalmist seems to be emphasizing the diversity of peoples included in the covenant family of God from all over the world. As John saw in his vision of the new Jerusalem, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, Revelation 21, 26. God is still fulfilling this vision for his people, being called from every people group. And after attending a course on missions I taught in Santa Marta, Colombia, Pastor and evangelist Jaime Leal went to preach the gospel to the Chimilas, a poor indigenous community in the nearby Sierra Nevada mountain. Being an unreached people group, there were no Christians among them yet. But as Jaime preached to them, many came to believe over time and through the involvement of many others on his team and even this congregation, 10th Church. Now there is a worshiping community and a school in their village, and God uses us to accomplish his purposes to reach those who seem most unlikely to be reached. The psalmist continues to determine who is doing this marvelous work, for the Most High himself will establish her. Salvation is all the work of our sovereign God. He planned for it and executed it through the glorious work of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. The psalmist continues in verse 6. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. God's predestinated purpose of saving his chosen people gradually becomes fulfilled as more and more of the peoples of the world come to saving faith through hearing the gospel. And he records each person by name, just as he has every star named. Every one of them is recorded as being born in Zion with all the citizenship rights of the family of God. The prophet Malachi wrote, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day that I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. It will be made clear who it is who serves God and who does not serve him. From Malachi 3. When Paul wrote the Gentile Ephesians, he reminded them that at one time they were separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul wrote to his fellow workers in Philippi, including Gentiles, as those whose names are in the book of life. He also wrote the Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, what a privilege. This registration of our names in the book of life as adopted sons and daughters and heirs of God gives us great assurance. The promise of Jesus to the church in Sardis received by John in his revelation says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Revelation 3, 5. God's people will remain secure at the end times because when the beast appears uttering blasphemies against God with authority over the peoples, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So, we can praise the Lord for this assurance of those who remain faithful. We will not have our name blotted out of God's registry of chosen names. It is only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life who will enter Zion, the new Jerusalem. Now the final verse seems apparently uh, on first reading disjointed in thought from the previous verses, but it expresses exuberance and praise for this wonderful work of God of having his chosen people from among all the peoples of the world. The psalmist exalts the Lord saying, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The singers and dancers were among those leading the congregation in praise and worship, perhaps marching in procession into the temple during the Feast of Booths. The same theme is found in the final Psalms, 149 and 150. Praise him with tambourine and dance, bring him, praise him with strings and pipe. Such a procession is further described in Psalm 68, 24 to 25. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Now the psalmist concludes in verse 7 with the words of praise they sing. What could the psalmist be referring to? In saying, those celebrating sing, all my springs are in you. It is similar to what the procession of singers in the sanctuary sang in Psalm 68, 26. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. In Jeremiah, the Lord accuses his people of having forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. 
Moreover, the psalmist states, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, in Psalm 46. And one of the three great Jewish festivals was the Feast of Booths, a joyful celebration of the ingathering of crops and commemoration of the Israelites living in tents for 40 years in the wilderness. And during the festival, water was drawn from Siloam and poured upon the temple altar to celebrate God's provi- God providing water out of the rock in the wilderness at Meribah in Exodus 17. When Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, from John 7. Here Jesus is claiming to be the rock out of which flows streams of life-giving living water, as he anticipated giving us his spirit beginning with the day of Pentecost. Paul confirmed this in writing the Corinthians, saying of the Israelites and recalling the water that gushed forth when Moses hit the rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Zechariah 2 had prophesied of the coming of the Spirit figured as a fountain or spring of water. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. In Zechariah 12, John indicates this prophecy is fulfilled when Jesus was crucified and pierced in his side with a spear. And Zechariah continues, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This spring of running water is necessary for ritual purification and represents a cleansing from sin. By the flowing blood of Jesus on our behalf, through repentance and faith, we are made holy. But as we already saw, a spring of living water also represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thus Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This healing and life-giving flow of water is pictured in John's revelation of what we can expect in heaven. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here pictured are eternal blessings and life for all peoples. What is amazing is that Jesus' invitation when at the festival to anyone who thirsts is open to all. 
not only to the Jews, but to the Gentile nations. At the following feast of unleavened bread, when Jesus had come into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry, riding on a donkey, some Greeks were also there to worship at the temple. They came to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Upon telling Jesus, he responded, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. By this he meant that it was a sign that the time had come for him to accomplish salvation for the world through his death and resurrection. These Greeks were seeking Jesus because by his sovereign grace, he was seeking them. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He seeks souls from all peoples. Having received the Holy Spirit, we too are to celebrate with exuberant living, greatly rejoicing in our forgiveness of sins, of an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus through his Spirit, and of of an assured eternal life with God. The beautiful music of a fountain that leaps and falls and runs reminds us of the joy of our salvation through the Spirit. The heavenly congregation, which sings about our unity from among all peoples through Jesus, invites you too, if you hear his voice, to come drink of that life-giving water from his fountain. Then you too will sing, all my fountains are in you. Will you drink of it now? The Lord invites you with these words from the end of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this invitation through Jesus to come to him without price, to drink of that living water that leads us to eternal life that water of forgiveness of sins through the the blood of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us to give us faith, understanding, repentance, and trust in God. And so, Lord, speak to us now. Work in our lives. Use us to also bring that life-giving message, that spring of water from Christ to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.